Hello and welcome to Strange Old World, the podcast where we expose the idiosyncrasies of the world's oldest cities. I'm Joe and in every episode I'll talk to a local expert in a different old world city. I'll ask them to choose a strange thing to see, a strange thing to do, a strange thing to eat, a strange festival, a strange legend or slice of history and a strange day trip. In this episode, we're talking about Tokyo, which began life as the humble fishing village of Edo. Between the 1450s and the 1720s, the village expanded like the Clappers to become the largest city on earth, which by many measures, it still is today. So Tokyo is old, though not as old as I thought before looking it up, but what makes it strange? To find out, I spoke to local travel writer David McElhinney. David writes about Japanese culture for lots of big travel publications and has a regular column for Tokyo Weekender. You'll find his stuff at davidmackelhinney.com. Before we start, just a warning that there are a few naughty words in this episode, as well as some in-depth genitalia chit-chat. We also discuss suicide at one point. Eagle-eared listeners may also notice that Buto gets its second mention in less than a month. For the first, listen to the Prague episode with Mark Pickering. So then, in this episode you'll hear about all kinds of strange Tokyo experiences, from the festival of the steel phallus to the culinary delicacy that is cod semen. You'll find all of David's recommendations listed on our website, strangeoldworld.com, and stay to the end for my favourite strange experience in Tokyo. Right then, here we go. So, welcome to the podcast, David McElhinney, a freelance journalist based in Tokyo, Japan. You've had articles published all over the place in Lonely Planet, CNN Travel, The Irish Independent, Al Jazeera, The Japan Times, and many more. We'll talk about some of your work shortly, but first, I want to know more about you. So, you're originally from Northern Ireland, right? Belfast, is that right? Belfast, yeah. Okay, so how did you end up in Japan? Uh, I mean, to cut a long story short, basically, I'd been... I'd lived in China for a little bit, in Shanghai. I'd travelled around Southeast Asia quite a lot, and then I lived in Australia for a while. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that part of the world, particularly East Asia. And Japan was somewhere, since I was young, you know, I'd always wanted to go to. And whenever I was travelling that part of the world, I never did. So I thought, after I wanted to leave Australia, that I would travel in Japan. And then I kind of just had a sense that it was somewhere that I'd really like to live. So I scrapped that idea and managed to get a teaching job in Japan. And uh, yeah, that brought me there. And then I taught English for a little bit, realized I wasn't a massive fan of that and sort of slowly transitioned into travel writing and journalism. Do you have any kind of qualifications in journalism or is it just something you kind of segued into naturally? Uh, no, no qualifications. I mean, I had, I would say, a very vague ambition for a while to be a writer mm-hmm. and when I was traveling you know I was doing a lot of writing for myself just about things I'd seen places I'd been that kind of stuff and when I was in Japan I was reading a lot of travel writing I don't want to disparage other people necessarily but I remember thinking I can do better and I think you do need a little bit of gumption and arrogance to to get into it in the first place um so I started cold pitching to people. Understandably, a lot of editors weren't interested because I didn't have any clips or experience, but eventually somebody tossed me a lifeline and then it sort of grew organically from there. Who took a punt on you early does? The first one was a very small travel website called All About Japan. From there, it was mostly within the 
Japan travel media space or Japan kind of like lifestyle magazine space. All in English, by the way, you know, for kind of an English-speaking audience that was either living there or wanted to travel there. So, like Tokyo Weekender, who I would still write for a lot. Um, another website called Live Japan, I did a bit for them. Uh, Tokyo Cheapo, basically all of the, you know... <laughs> Tokyo Cheapo sounds great. Yeah, yeah, what well, is for cheapskates in Tokyo, you know, as the name implies. But yeah, I mean, all of the kind of English language uh, publications in Japan, I was, you know, eventually managed to get something in, which was a good stepping stone, I guess, to to start writing for international media as well yeah absolutely what are some of your personal favorite articles well i did one recently which i enjoyed about the kumano kodo which is this sort of pilgrimage route in japan which kind of holds the nation's origin story supposedly where emperor jimu who is the the kind of mythical start of the imperial line to on 2700 years ago got lost there and then he met a three-legged crow that kind of guided him through the wilderness and you can kind of walk this this route today it sort of winds through this um tree covered um mountainous peninsula down near kind of kyoto and osaka and yeah i just kind of talked about the profound effect that it had sort of walking along this trail kind of by myself in silence and just sort of reflecting on all of the different little kind of silent narrators if you like you know there's like little stone cairns and jizo statues and you're kind of looking at them going like why the hell did did people put these here um and you know you see little commemorations along the trail of you know people who walked it as some kind of pilgrimage or you know ascetic act and, and died along the way so that kind of idea of like what is it about these journeys that people are willing to risk their lives to go on and then another one I did recently was about the appreciation of silence in traditional Japanese culture. Yeah, I really enjoyed kind of exploring that because, I mean, Tokyo is like a cacophonous city. I mean, it's just a barrage of external stimuli kind of at all at all times. But in traditional Japanese culture, I mean, silence was not just part and parcel of daily life, but it was really kind of respected and it was kind of explored in the different, you know, traditional art forms and stuff. So that was a really fun article to kind of research and write. Mm-hmm. So you came to Japan, how long ago was it that you first moved there? January 2018. Okay, so almost six years. So why did you choose to settle down in Tokyo in particular? Is there something about that city that makes it a special place to live or to visit, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I I always liked big cities. Mm -hmm. I lived in Shanghai um, and travelled in Bangkok and Hanoi and other big cities in Asia and I just really liked them so that was kind of part of the the impetus you know to go and and I kind of felt that I would like it I mean in terms of choosing to settle there it was just that it's such a dynamic city you know there are parts of Tokyo that are basically unrecognizable from when I first moved there in 2018 like Shibuya which is you know a pretty popular kind of downtown neighborhood like it was just wreathed in construction sites basically now all of that construction has come to fruition and the actual kind of cityscape is unrecognizable from what it was six years ago i mean there's a, a great japanologist called donald ritchie who he died about 10 years ago but he once said that you can't give in to nostalgia in tokyo and i kind of i believe that a wee bit because a lot of stuff that you go this is beautiful like i hope they keep it like this the the impetus actually is to knock that shit down and create something bigger and better and newer so um that dynamism is great but you know it does have sort of negative side effects um the 24 7 nature of the city i love as well you know something i get frustrated about when i'm traveling in in europe and america sometimes is that cities feel like they they sort of shut down after about one o'clock mm-hmm. um whereas tokyo has certain neighborhoods that you know are genuinely always a buzz it's partly out of necessity because the trains stop between 12 and 5 a.m ish a lot of people will live in the sleeper towns outside tokyo and it's really expensive to get a taxi so it's cheaper to go and you know sit in a little beef bowl 
chain restaurant and eat your food and then just sleep on the counter until the train arrives in the morning or you can go into a karaoke parlor you know they're 24 7 there are lots of little bars as well that are 24 7 so i love that aspect of it as well and i kind of love the the fact that it shouldn't really work you know it has no right to be as efficient and polite and um yeah like crime free as it is you know you've got 40 million people there thereabouts living in a big metropolitan sprawl and if that was in any other country in the world i can't imagine that things would be as efficient and as crime-free as they are in tokyo so i mean that's just like it still baffles me you know i mean of course there's like underlying aspects of japanese culture that perhaps have influenced that but i think that's amazing and then lastly the food uh the food's just out of this world you know i mean tokyo consistently has the most michelin star restaurants every single year Mm -hmm. it's like hundreds of michelin stars across maybe a hundred odd restaurants and whenever you have that kind of quality at the top it sort of trickles down through every strata of the culinary bedrock which means you know you have restaurants at the bottom which are very cheap but the standard of food is still very high you know i mean you can't if you open up a restaurant with shit food in tokyo you're not going to survive you know so um yeah i mean i could probably go on and on and on but those are sort of the major (laughs) things that come to mind great do you have um I know in Singapore you have like street food stores that have Michelin stars. Is that the case in Tokyo? Is it all kind of fine dining restaurants? No, definitely not all fine dining, but it's also not a massive kind of street food market culture there. A lot of the dining is done indoors, you know, kind of in little, I guess more, they're public spaces, but they feel like more private spaces. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you you can get Michelin star ramen, for example, which costs with the current exchange rate, like the equivalent of, you know, six or seven quid. Wow. How much money you're willing to spend on food does not preclude you from quality. Okay, let's talk about some strange stuff. I'll ask for your tips on bizarre things to enjoy in the city that you call home. First of all, can you suggest a strange thing to see in Tokyo? I created such an exhaustive list <laughs> just thinking about it. I mean, <laughs> there, you know, there is a, a narrative which I would say is dominant in Western media about Japan, Western travel media particularly, that it is this sort of strange, wacky, mm-hmm. out there, over the top place, which, you know, is, it is founded, I guess, in a degree of truth, but I kind of don't want to perpetuate a narrative that I feel is a little bit cliched and reductive, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but Japanese performance art, the traditional performance art, is esoteric and the language is like impenetrably Japanese. Like even a lot of young Japanese people would, would struggle with it. But often when you go to see them, you know, you'll get like a little tablet and that'll give you like an English translation, which is not the best because if you're sitting in Kabuki, for example, which a lot of people would know, these shows can run on for like hours and hours and hours. So your neck is probably busted by the end of it just with that kind of, you know, it's like you're watching tennis or something you know um yeah i mean there's kabuki no are probably the two most famous ones um there's also rakugo which is kind of like a one-man performance like with comedic elements there's kyogen and nogaku there's bunraku which is actually really interesting that's um japanese puppet theater okay big like kind of i think like three foot tall puppets Mm -hmm. and you've got three different people who sort of direct the puppet and they're dressed all in black so, you know, you kind of, you have to suspend your disbelief to pretend you can't see them as they sort of run around the stage. And there's usually someone kind of narrating the story from the side, maybe someone playing like a shamisen, you know, that kind of Japanese guitar-like instrument. Uh, buto is another interesting one, which is this sort of arrhythmic, erotic style of dance where everybody's kind of painted head to toe in white. So those are all like really interesting kind of strange uh, things in their own way that you can see in different parts of Tokyo. 
Um, but the one thing I'm going to focus on, just because I've always found it strange and interesting in its own way, are the Tokyo Rockabillies, or the Shibuya Rockabillies, who are better known as the Strangers. So this is a, a group of mostly middle-aged, mostly um, men, who, they're all, all Japanese, you know, and they have these kind of, like, pompadour, ducktail hairstyles, and they wear, you know, kind of uh, clothes that are sort of an homage to kind of 50s Americana, and they congregate just outside uh, Yoyogi Park every Sunday and they just kind of dance to rockabilly music. There's something about that kind of that music which is really sort of like spiritually uplifting. It's quite innocent, you know, and mm-hmm. in its own way and yeah, people just kind of, you know, jig to the side and, and watch them. And they've been doing this for ages. These guys, like, they've been there for over 30 years. Obviously members of the group change over time, but if you, you know, watch videos of them doing it kind of back in the day, there's like, you know, policemen and stuff getting involved. I feel like it's kind of emblematic of this um, ikigai. It's one of those kind of like, you know, many untranslatable Japanese terms, which is sort of like, um, you know, finding your, your why or your raison d'etre or, you know, kind of your, your reason for being. And it's like something that people will dedicate themselves to as kind of like a way of life rather than just a hobby. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these guys, I mean, they're like, this is this is their passion. You know, this is what they dedicate themselves to outside of their, their normal day jobs. Do they make any money from it? Is it like, uh, do they put out a hat or something? Um, no, I mean, it's not It's not busking, really. Okay. You know I mean, I, like, it's not busking in that sense. But I think in 1993, I'm going to say, Paul McCartney was doing a, a tour in, in Japan, and he came across them and actually asked them to perform with them at, at Tokyo Dome. And I think they were asked to perform in Rio, maybe at some stage as well. And I know one of them was, like, asked to go over to Dailan in China and kind of uh, train another rockabilly group. So... I'm assuming maybe for some of that stuff, yeah, there was uh, some sort of remuneration or whatever, but yeah. um, I don't actually know. I mean, it, it certainly, it, you get the sense that, that if nobody was there and nobody was watching, they'd be doing it anyway. You know, it reminds me of like jazz or traditional Irish music in that sense that it's not really performative to an audience. It's kind of more, mm-hmm. the value isn't intrinsic. So how about a strange thing to do in Tokyo? Again, God, it's so hard to just distill it down into one. Uh, I mean, a couple of things I'd sort of jotted down were different types of museums. So you got loads of weird ones, like there's a parasitological museum where you can go and look at these, you know, parasites and eldritch-looking creatures suspended in big formaldehyde vats that have probably been, you know, pulled from the entrails of some human or <laughs> livestock or something. Uh, there's a tobacco and salt museum. Which just feels like an awkward coupling, right? I mean, I guess it's kind of related to how they were once important trade commodities or whatever. Um, there's a sewage museum, which, um, yeah, like, sounds, sounds a bit shit, doesn't it? But, <laughs> but just, um, So there's all that kind of stuff. But the, the thing I want to focus most on was the, the jazz kisa, which are kind of emblematic of a really interesting period in Japanese history. But also it's this sort of subculture which has been kind of underground but at the same time running strong for the past 60 or so years and they are essentially jazz listening spaces little cafes bars where you go and sit and listen to jazz but just to try and give some historical context in in the 1960s a lot of the you know the black jazz musicians were treated like shit at home you know they were segregated because of the color of their skin but when they came to japan they were treated like gods i mean they were absolute heroes so when art blakey came in 1961, I think it was New Year's Day, that was kind of the impetus for all of these jazz musicians to go and start playing in Japan. So jazz started to become a big kind of, you know, imported music scene. And 
the records themselves were expensive, so these listening spaces started to proliferate where people could go and sit and you know drink a coffee and smoke cigarettes and listen to jazz music. And um, I think the idea of jazz being kind of a countercultural, you know, sort of the music of the revolution, if you like, that dovetailed with this same idea in Japan that there was a lot of kind of student protests and kind of anti-government rhetoric, you know, coming from within mm -hmm. the, the halls of universities. So there was just kind of like a spiritual relationship there. And as the music started to proliferate and as these, the number of these jazz listening spaces started to grow, you know, they hit like an apex probably in the 1970s. There was like 250 of them in Tokyo. There's a guy called James Catchpole who runs Tokyo Jazz Site. If you're interested, I recommend looking that up. But he reckons that Tokyo's probably lost about 100 of these in the past sort of 50 years or so. But of the ones that are still remaining, a lot of them are still in the same shape that they were, you know, when they first opened in the 60s and 70s. They've been battered by decades of tobacco smoke. You know, it's still the same proprietor or the master, as they call him, you know, who kind of presides over the music and the texts like, you know, he's a priest in some sort of pseudo-religious space. Um... So they're just kind of really interesting spaces and you don't need to be a jazz lover to enjoy them. You know, you can kind of go and, and sit there and I think kind of just appreciate the the history of them and, and the fact that, you know, it's a culture that is ultimately in decline kind of makes it, I guess, a little bit more melancholic in a way because you're kind of sitting going, this place is so cool. But after this master who's potentially in his 80s, once he, you know, doesn't want to look after it anymore or can't, there's not an awful lot of, you know, suitors waiting in the wings to take it over. One particular one which I would suggest is called Jazz Bar Samurai. It actually has nothing to do with samurais at all, and so far as I could tell. But it's just got really like interesting decor. So it's kind of an, an homage to jazz, but also to traditional Japanese culture. So you have like the the bar counter is enwreathed in these goshimaku, which are Buddhist flags, and then behind it you just have this rich, you know, archive of original edition like vinyl LPs. You have like a little paper lantern that illuminates a, a picture of John Coltrane playing the saxophone. And there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of these maneki neko. You know, those little bobbing cat dolls, that, that kind of thing with the arm just everywhere, like everywhere all around the bar. Are they synchronized? Are they uh, in time with the music? They're, they're not, but it has the sense, you know, they give off the sense that they are, that they're kind of bobbing to, you know, these saxophone melodies that are... I feel like if you looked at them long enough, they'd somehow synchronise in your mind. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, and the, the more beer you drink, obviously, you know, you're convinced that they synchronise. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's one that I recommend going to. So next up, how about a strange festival or event or tradition in Tokyo? Definitely the weirdest one, in my opinion, is the Kanamara Matsuri which is often translated to the, the Festival of the Steel Phallus. <laughs> technically, it is just outside Tokyo, I should add. It's in a place called Kawasaki, which is part of the Tokyo Sprawl. You know, technically, it's Kanagawa. But basically, the, the mythology, there's a couple of mythologies behind why the festival started. I prefer the kind of alternative one, so I'll tell that. There was a woman who had a demon that took refuge inside her vagina. She got married, and whatever her newlywed husband had sex with her the demon bit off the husband's penis i'm not entirely sure what happened to him but he probably met an uncomfortable demise she got married again and the same thing happened the demon bit off her next husband's penis <laughs> so she went to a blacksmith and asked the blacksmith to create a steel penis so he created a steel penis i'm assuming she duly inserted that into her vagina and the demon went for it again but it broke his teeth and excised him from her body so this is what the festival commemorates. It commemorates um, that penis apparently has been 
like stored, I guess, or enshrined, you know, within the shrine, which I think is called Kanayama Shrine, if I remember that correctly. And does it have uh, teeth marks on it? That's a good question. You know, it's, <laughs> it's probably not not for. Um, it's probably like you know one of those you get this a lot in Japanese shrines where there's some kind of sacred item that's enshrined within, which is not fit for public consumption, right. if you like. Um, consumption is probably the wrong word, <laughs> yeah. Guess. but. Um, yeah, and also enshrined within it, I guess, in, in relation to the fact that it was a blacksmith who made the, the steel penis is the, the god of, of blacksmiths, and maybe the god of mining is enshrined in there as well. So that's essentially what this festival commemorates. It's in April every year. There's like a big mikoshi, which is kind of like a float, you know, that's carried by uh, members of the, the shrine or whatever, and which is, yeah, just a big, you know, kind of erect steel phallus. Um, and then in the stalls and stuff that will surround it, you'll get penis-shaped memorabilia and t-shirts with sexual things written on it. I mean, it's that, it sounds like a hen party. Yeah, very, very much hen party vibes. <laughs> it's like cock chocolate and... <laughs> 100%, yeah. I actually hadn't thought about that, but you're spot on. That's exactly <laughs> what it's like. Um, it's kind of weird because, like, you know, you there's pictures of, like, kids, you know, eating these, like, penis-shaped lollipops and stuff, which is um, it's just a cognitive sort of, I don't know, dissonance or something there. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely one of the one of the stranger festivals in the city. I think it's actually only been going since the late nineteen sixties, but I'm I'm assuming that the mythology is much older than that. Um, and I think actually that whatever the other kind of you know the, the traditional story that surrounds it um, was kind of related to sex workers that used to work in an area near the shrine, and they would go and kind of pray there to rid themselves of STDs and for fertility and things like that. So I mean. It sounds like a, a metaphor for an STD. Yeah. A demon that lives inside a vagina that takes someone's cock. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the, um, yeah, I, I guess that is the, the metaphorical connection. So is there a particular kind of square or street where the event happens? Yeah, so it's Kanayama Shrine. So it's literally just kind of like around the, the shrine complex. It's usually the first Sunday of, uh, of every April. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely the strange. Just that there's another festival to touch on very briefly. Um, I can't remember it's, proper name but it's basically parents it takes place at a Asakusa temple which is the biggest and oldest uh, Buddhist temple in Tokyo and parents give their babies to sumo wrestlers and then the sumo wrestlers try and make the babies cry <laughs> oh, I've seen yeah, this which you, yeah I'm sure people have seen videos of that on YouTube uh, which I think a crying there's a proverb or something that a crying baby is a healthy baby or something like that so that's kind of the, the rationale behind that and that's like 400 years old so that's been going on for where, where do the sumo wrestlers come in because they look like big babies um, I don't really know. I mean, I guess because sumo, it could be that, yeah. I guess because sumo wrestlers, like, that sport was deemed to be kind of handed down from the Shinto gods, so maybe it's more of a, a spiritual connection, yeah. How about a strange thing to eat or drink in Tokyo? I imagine there's quite a few of these. Yeah, yeah, there are. There are. There are foods, particularly foods that, you know, I could live there for a million years and never quite acclimatized to. Um, <laughs> I remember the one... The first day I was in Tokyo, I think, I was actually trying to to live on like $10 a day or something ridiculous. So I was doing a lot of budget food stuff. And I just, in a metro station, I bought what I thought was just looked like a donut, but it had cream, but also anchovy, I think, or some very strong fish flavor. So it's got a really weird mix of sweet and savory, very fishy creamy thing yeah that was my first japanese food experience in japan yeah that's that's, that's pretty rogue you play with fire when you just punt for you know a random donut especially if you can't read any of you know the, yes. the katakana or, or kanji or you know whatever script they use um the interesting actually there's a, there's a donut a curry donut which i love called curry pan um it's kind of sugary on the outside but has like a 
sort of a beef flavored curry on the inside. I know that sounds horrible, but that just sounds very nice. You reckon? Yeah. Okay. Um, but I think it was one of those things that the first time I ate it, I was you know steaming, you know, coming home. The convenience stores are all twenty four seven, so you go in and you say, fuck, I'll have that, I'll have that, you know, just shovel whatever I can into me <laughs> to try and you know um, push back the hangover and negate it to a degree. And uh, that was one of them. And I was like, Jesus, this is lovely. So. Yeah, um, curry flavored donuts, curry curry pan as they're called. So if you're in Japan, check those out. Uh, shout shout out to curry donuts. Um, so the the types of foods that like I try and stay clear from mostly the category of it would be slimy foods. They call it nabe nabe. It's one of their kind of uh, onomatopoeic words for I guess the sound it makes when it's slamming about in your mouth. So you have natto, which is um fermented soybeans uh japanese people love that for breakfast it's got a real snotty texture that's not not mm-hmm. for me um tororo is another one which is grated yam which again has that kind of slimy texture and there's another slimy seaweed which you often get as an otoshi which is sort of like a it's kind of like an amuse-bouche i guess they give it to you in like little like izakaya restaurants you know just as like something to have with your beer while you wait for the food to come out i think it's called me- me- mekabu maybe but it's horrible it's the sort of thing you eat and like you've got like a line of slime connected from the bowl to the chopstick to the seaweed to your mouth probably your t-shirt and all sorts so i mean if you're into that kind of stuff you know more part to you but just <laughs> not for me um fugu is another one that people know you know that the puffer fish mm-hmm. um salted squid guts are very popular again just not not for me oh and habushu i should mention habushu this sort of liqueur which is made with a, a pit viper like a snake you know they put it in the vat and then they kind of um I guess age the the alcohol with it with the snake in there, so it's quite jarring, you know. If you see it on a on a shelf or something, there's just a big snake you see with its fangs kind of bared looking at you. So I know I've just kind of thrown a laundry list at you there, but the one thing which is the weirdest for me is shirako, which again you might have come across, which is cod semen. Mm-hmm. To be honest with you, like the idea of where something come from doesn't bother me so much. I mean, it's definitely a bit strange when you're like, okay, that's you know cod semen, but you know I would eat salmon, eggs, salmon roe, no problem, you know. But it's got this, I mean, it looks like the white matter of a brain. And it has this kind of pillowy texture with faint notes of the sea and the flavor. And it's just, I mean, it's it's bizarre. But like, if you want to kind of try something really out there, you know, I that's probably the most out there thing that I can think of. Wow. Okay. Can you recommend somewhere to try it? Yeah. So you can actually get it just in most sushi shops um, or most kind of seafood, you know, restaurants would, would have um, some variation on it. Uh, there's a place in particular, you know, if you want to go somewhere where it's, people think of it quite highly is a restaurant in kind of kichijoji musashino sort of area kind of out sort of west tokyo direction called bakawarai junsui uh which translates to laughing idiot so <laughs> i'd recommend that as much for the name of the restaurant as for the yeah what they serve inside it amazing i did have fugu that was the one thing i saved i basically didn't eat anything for four days so that i could afford to have fugu did you enjoy it i really did i i mean i was very hungry yeah <laughs> uh, i thought it's Excellent. I really enjoyed it a lot. Can you tell me a strange myth or legend or slice of history in Tokyo? Yeah, so, I mean, folklore is massive in Japanese culture. You know, there's a, a guy called Lafkari O'Hearn, who I've, I've written a fair amount about, who's, he was a big folklorist. So, that, you know, he kind of, uh, he wrote in English about a lot of these old folk tales, um, some of which, you know, kind of took place in Tokyo. So there's a real tradition of folklore. There's a lot of really interesting stories, but I want to focus on something that's a bit newer, um, and you know, there's maybe a bit of a reference point for anyone who's been to Tokyo. So, at Shibuya Station, just where the big intersection is, that very famous crossing, um, there's a statue of a dog called Hachiko, 
basically there was a professor at Tokyo Imperial University it was then called Tokyo Imperial University who bought an Akita which is a type of dog that's a little bit bigger than a, a Shiba which is you know a lot of people I guess would recognize a Shiba dog as being a very Japanese looking you know kind of dog mm-hmm. and the Akita was called Hachiko Hachiko used to come and meet his owner on his commute back from work at Shibuya station every day and then they would walk home together then the owner when he was at university at work one day he died, I think, of a cerebral brain hemorrhage. Um, Hachiko obviously was none the wiser, so Hachiko came to meet him that day, and the owner was nowhere to be seen. So Hachiko made the journey back home, and then the next day he came at the same time that he usually met his owner to the station, and again the owner didn't turn up. And Hachiko repeated that same journey every single day for the next 10 years until Hachiko himself died. So it's kind of like, I actually I don't think it is apocryphal, I'm pretty sure it's true or, or close to true, but I think it's just that it's it's kind of a it's uplifting in a way, but also really sad in a way, you know. And I think yeah, anyone who doesn't believe that dogs are man's best friend, you know, listen to that and tell me otherwise. Okay, so I'm going to ask for your stranger danger. Are there any customs of visitors to Tokyo that might be perceived as strange by the locals? Oh God, basically everything. Like <laughs> I feel like life in Japan is just constantly trying to navigate social mores you know um if i think of kind of you know basic sort of like civic spaces like on the train you know japanese trains are silent like when the platforms are so loud and then when the doors close it's like this whoop you know and just you're kind of cocooned in this silent space but um a lot of foreigners in japan are not as used to being cocooned in a silent public space so um people kind of frown upon you talking too loudly talking on the phone eating on the train drinking on the train you know, you can often see furtive glances <laughs> being directed at you. It's, a, I guess, a bit like the UK. It's not a very confrontational culture, right? So people just kind of sit there and tut. Yeah, yeah. Well, kind of, yeah, or you know, tut silently. Um, <laughs> you might get the odd sort of elderly Japanese man who might, you know, have a wee, have a wee word with you. Like it's only happened to me once, mind. But you know, I did have an older Japanese man kind of give me a soft elbow, just saying <laughs> urusai, urusai, which is like that's loud, you know. So. Yeah, it's unlikely that people are likely to confront you on anything. And I mean, that's another thing that is a real contrast between lots of people who travel in Japan and Japanese themselves is the communication styles are very different. Um, even when you're going to introductions, you know, we tend to be a bit more handsy, sort of in, in a non-perverted way, you know. We like handshakes and hugs, whereas they like to keep their distance and buy and kind of the only sort of connection might be handed over the business card, you know, you kind of do that with two hands and mm-hmm. you take it off them. So... Yeah, I feel like um, no matter how long you live here, yeah, you're constantly trying to work out sort of the etiquette, which is fine. I mean, it's part of what, what makes life interesting is, you know, feeling like you're you're always a bit of an alien. Yeah, so you don't really shake hands generally with people that you meet. I mean, would you bow as a foreigner or is that considered a bit strange? Yeah, no, I would. I mean, I probably look like an idiot when I do it. But yeah, sometimes, I mean, it depends. Like if it's, uh, if it's someone who's lived abroad for long, I'm more likely to initiate a handshake, but Often I wouldn't initiate the handshake. I might just kind of like a very, what, what do we call that? Like, you know, like a 15 degree buy or something. Just a little. I mean, they, they know that we don't really know how to buy. You know, it's fine. Yeah. yeah, but sometimes I've initiated a handshake, perhaps when it wasn't quite desired. And you, you get in response a bit of like a, a jelly hand. Right. And it feels weird for, for for both people involved. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I guess you, you get better at kind of, uh, yeah, understanding which people you meet that might be keen for a handshake and which you'd probably prefer if you, you kept a little bit of distance. But, you know, once you become, like, lots of Japanese friends, you know, that hug and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, and, um, yeah, it's it's a generalization, but it, it does sort of, you know, 
uh, ring true to a certain degree. Last but not least, can you recommend a strange day trip from Tokyo? Yeah, so I was kind of thinking about this one. There's there's one which I want to use the word recommend a wee bit loosely, but <laughs> it's called uh, Aogigahara, or the Sea of Trees, or often more commonly known by its epithet, the Suicide Forest. I imagine you've heard of it, you know, I guess it's kind of I have, yes. one of those sort of stories that, that's spread out from Japan because it's it's kind of unique and macabre in its own way, but um, Japan obviously has quite high suicide rates and a lot of people go to this forest, which is at the foot of Mount Fuji, um, to kill themselves, so that's definitely a weird thing. I would recommend going to try and find a dead body. I actually think there was a YouTuber. Yeah, I've heard about that. Was it Logan Paul or one of those YouTubers, I think, yeah, you know, filmed a body or something, which obviously is not recommended, but the forest itself, you know, it, it has this kind of aura, this sort of spooky aura around it, but, you know, it's not uncommon for people to go just for a hike or a walk because it's, you know, quite scenic in its own way. So... Is there a reason why it has become a hotspot for this? Is there some kind of mythology related to it, or is it is there a convenience aspect? A lot of the suicide in Japan comes from the fact that people feel really isolated from society. So the fact that they can go and end their lives the way they see fit at the same place that lots of other people do it kind of instills a sense of community in them, I think. But like, I was actually just thinking about this the other day. Like, you know, if somebody goes up to, you know, they buy their ticket at a machine, I imagine. But if somebody was to go up to, you know, ticket inspector and say, "I'll have a one-way ticket to Okigahara, please," you know, red flags have to go. I'm sure there's kind of an interesting, it's an interesting little short story or something to be written about that. I think. I can imagine if there was something like that uh, elsewhere, you might have um, religious groups standing at the station handing out flyers saying, you know, don't don't do it. You know, in Japan, it's. So a bit of a faux pas to kind of unnecessarily involve yourself in other people's business. It's part of the reason why things are, you know, so polite in the communication style as indirect as it is. But there are signs, a suicide hotline sort of number or something. Yeah, I was going to say Samaritans or something, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, the, the government or the local authorities have put up signage that basically tells people to kind of, you know, implores them to think again. So yeah, that was the the one I said I didn't want to recommend. <laughs> Talked about it quite a lot, but yeah, it's 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 there. It's there. You know, um, I'll I'll leave whether or not you go to your own discretion. But um, I wanted to actually recommend you know for anyone who likes hiking, Tokyo. Obviously, we think of it as this dense urban sprawl, but the the kind of city prefectural limits, if you like, stretch quite far out to the west and into the into the mountains. So you can there's a couple. Of, I mean, a popular one to hike is Takao. Um, I'm not a big fan of it just because it's so busy. I would probably recommend going to Mitake maybe instead, which is quite accessible, quite manageable, but um, definitely less crowded. And then if you go deeper into the Okutama region, you can climb Kawanori, which is the one I would recommend the most. Um, I'd say you need to have a moderate level of, of fitness, you know, and leg strength to do it, but... Mm-hmm. It's amazing that you're still kind of within the, the, the Tokyo official limits and you're like in complete wilderness. You barely see anybody else on the trail. You pass like, you know, some beautiful sort of waterfalls and, you know, rock features. And um, yeah, you know, when you get to the top, there's a little sort of uh, kind of shrine-like thing kind of commemorating it. So I definitely recommend hiking that. It is a bit of a pain in the ass to get to. It's, it's probably better if you have a car that you can drive and kind of park at the at the foot of the trail and, and walk up. But yeah, just that idea that you're in the world's most populous city, but also standing in the mountains at the same time is this kind of, yeah, it's this cool sort of cognitive dissonance, you know. This 
Okay, so let's park the strange stuff for a minute. Can you give me some straight up recommendations for Tokyo? What are the things that I have to do? Have to do? Um, I always recommend looking up. So in a lot of the main neighborhoods, it can be overwhelming when you see just how many sort of restaurants and stuff there are. It's hard to pick somewhere for lunch, but at ground level, in the busiest areas, a lot of those places are cheaper, lower quality chain stores. A lot of the nicer restaurants and bars and things like that often exist on the third, fourth, fifth, sixth floor of these buildings. So I recommend kind of looking up and there'll often be like, uh, you know, kind of signage outside and maybe pick in a restaurant based on what you see above you rather than at ground level. So those are kind of broad recommendations. Um, I recommend going to some of the lesser traveled neighborhoods as well. Uh, Kita Senju, where I used to live for a while, is great. It's not really on the tourist trail, but it's got this really nice yokocho, which is kind of like a drinking, dining alleyway. Just, you know, crammed full of little tiny restaurants and bars. Mm -hmm. You know, people probably be familiar with Golden Guy, maybe Omoide Yokocho, but in some cases, actually, they've kind of catered to tourists, but in some of the bars, they've basically banned tourists. Whereas if you go to Kita Senju, it still feels like, in my opinion, a, a more authentic sort of yokocho experience. Uh, Kichi Joji is another neighborhood which is not massively popular for tourists, but quite popular for uh, expats to live in. And it's got a little connection of alleyways full of like bars and standing restaurants and things like that, ramen shops called harmonica yokocho which is it's all kind of roofed i guess the idea is that it maybe looks like the inside of a harmonica or something actually i don't really know where that name comes from i should probably look that up but that's a really cool neighborhood and you're close to the studio ghibli museum there if you want to go and check that out mm -hmm. close to the uh Ino inokashira park which is um one of the nicest spots in the city for seeing cherry blossoms great so yeah kind of just checking out neighborhoods that like if it's your first time in tokyo you're going to want to go to the shibuya's the shinjuku's um, Ueno perhaps even but I recommend kind of going to these slightly less explored neighborhoods and uh, another one actually I'd recommend is Jimbocho it's got like two or three hundred different bookshops in it it's very cool on that note I would also recommend going to Infinity Books which is the last second-hand English language bookshop in Tokyo um, he's got like 15,000 books in there I know the proprietor a guy called Nick he's a curmudgeon but you know he's a great guy and he runs, um, he runs like music nights and stuff there on the weekend. So you can go and you're sitting amongst these antique cabinets with all these books, listening to people just jam and, you know, you can have a drink and stuff there. But that's out in Asakusa, which is quite close to Sensoji Temple, which is an area that a lot of people will go to anyway. So um, I recommend if you've got time, go and check that out, particularly weekend evenings. Um, it tends to be tends to be pretty lively. Why should people visit Tokyo now? I mean, like I said, I guess Tokyo, it's, it's so dynamic. Things are always changing. You know, there's always new stuff happening. There's always new great art exhibitions coming up. There's always, you know, kind of new restaurants opening up. Like, it's it's a city that I think if you were to go today and then return in three years' time, if you went to the same neighborhoods, you would, you would notice little changes. So, again, just kind of circling back on what I said at the start, that, that dynamism, I think, is a reason not just to go now, but to always go. You know, I think it's it's never really a bad time to go. Perhaps in August when it's far too bloody hot. It's like, you know, 30, 35, 36 degrees with like 70, 80, 90% humidity sometimes. It's, it's off. I mean, you get, you know, a city that hot or a city that kind of congested and it's that hot, it feels like it, you know, ups the temperature by another 10 degrees or something. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, why not? I mean, I guess this will be coming out in January. So the winter is a great time, I think, to travel in Tokyo because it's less busy. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the attractions and... Uh, sites of interest would be less thronged by crowds this time of year typically and um yeah i mean it's 
it's colder for sure like you know you get quite a bone chilling cold in the winter there but you often get beautiful blue skies as well and it's um one of the nicest one of the only times of the year that you can quite consistently see mount fuji as well from from vantage points in tokyo so i think the winter there is great finally what's the strangest sight you've seen elsewhere in the old world well i'm i'm probably gonna stick with japan um if that's okay mm-hmm. and tell you about yakushima which uh is very much the embodiment of, of the old world in Japan. So Yakushima is an island uh, just off the south coast of Kyushu, which is kind of the antithesis of Japanese order. It feels very rough around the edges, like you arrive off the flight and it's a tiny little airport and people are just like trailing your luggage off and like throwing it at you. I mean, all of the kind of niceties and formalities that you get so used to in Japan just um, are kind of obliterated there. And the majority of the island is a UNESCO protected forest. You just get a real sense of kind of like the spiritual history of, of this island. You know, it's like the sort of place where people have like shamanic knowledge of all the plant life and they, like the guide who was taking us, he just stopped at one stage and just put his hand on the trunk of a tree. And then just said, it's just something about that tree. I just feel like I have a connection with it walked on. And it was really cool. It felt like, you know, in a way it might seem as just, you know, mumbo jumbo bullshit, but it, it seemed like the people actually just had a real reverence for the nature of the island, which was so inherent in traditional Japanese culture. But a lot of the, especially the main island, Honshu, is just so much primeval forest and stuff has been stripped, you know, in order to put down urban cityscapes and it just felt like it was kind of it encapsulated this idea that once ran so deep in traditional japanese culture but which i think has been forgotten by lots of parts of the country um because they've yeah just replaced nature with concrete so you got a sense that they were kind of like the last one of the last bastions of old japan you know and um just a beautiful landscape like there's very little soil the lifeblood of the forest is moss the trees all grow from the moss and when they fall over, another tree grows on top of it. So you have like trees upon trees growing upon trees just all over the place. This like extravagantly green landscape mm-hmm. and constantly shrouded in mist. You know, it's always raining in some shape or form, but that adds to kind of the ethereal quality of it. So definitely somewhere that I think if you can get to in Japan, it's a wee bit out of the ways, which is good because it means fewer people go there, you know, especially for like, you know, just in and out trips. People that go usually stay a few days, but yeah, absolutely stunning hmm. okay and how do you get there is it a flight or do you travel down and get a boat you can fly yeah you can fly from i think fukuoka or kagoshima um but you can't fly direct from tokyo or osaka yet which is a good thing yeah yeah you can do that or you can take boats i think there's a kind of a slow overnight boat or there's sort of a high speed one which gets you there in a few hours from kagoshima so yeah i mean part of its um its, its attraction is that it's it's difficult to get to There we have it, strange old Tokyo. A massive thanks to David for his picks. If you want to parade around with a load of cocks, insert your own joke reflecting your personal political beliefs here, the Festival of the Steel Phallus is at the Kaniyama Shrine on the first Sunday every April. Remember, you'll find all of David's Tokyo tips up on our website, strangeoldworld.com. There are also links to all of his articles we've mentioned. To see more of his work, including, in the coming year or so, a brand new Japan guidebook he's working on, visit davidmackelhinney.com. Before I go, here's my favourite odd Tokyo attraction, Kapabashi Dori. When I travelled in Japan, I loved how restaurants would display their dishes in the window. It made ordering as a non-Japanese speaker much easier. 
but it took me a while to realise that these weren't real dishes, but incredibly realistic replicas made from plastic and resin. After finding out there was one particular market in Tokyo where people bought their plastic food, I decided to visit, and it was just brilliantly bizarre. Take a stroll around Kapabashi Dori, or Kitchen Town, and you'll see all manner of plastic masterpieces for sale. From sashimi to salad leaves, chicken wings to chocolate cake, it's amazing. Okay, that's enough. Thanks for listening and join me next time to discover the strange side of another old world city. The music is by William King and this was a Junior Productions production.